Post-communist states such as Russia and Ukraine are always uh, confusing to Western audiences due to their differences in values and political structures. But to understand this becomes increasingly relevant due to the geopolitical affairs that these countries are involved in. To make sense of these issues, I sat down with Vera Kikanova, who is currently studying for a Master's of Public Policy at the University of Oxford. Her notable accomplishments include being the first libertarian councillor ever elected to Moscow City Council, as well as being on the ground during the recent uh, Ukrainian revolution, being a reporter for the Kiev-based Reed Media. She and I discussed the topics of liberalism in Eastern Europe. for joining me today. Hello, Ryan. So, you uh, were reporting in Ukraine when the revolutions against the previous government began. Yes. What were your experiences on the ground like? So, uh, the, all the media worldwide were reporting about the unusual bravery of the Ukrainian uh, people who were protesting against the corrupt government. But what... Uh, Inspiring. What I found even more inspiring was their ability to self-organize. So basically, that revolutionary camp where the people, so the people were occupying the streets, and for uh, several months in a row they were living on the streets. People were coming from all the regions of the country. They were uh, also occupying the government buildings, those that they had a chance to uh, take over, and it was like a city within the city so they had all the sort of services that they did on like uh that they've created from scratch so they had a medical service though the group of people who were helping uh those injured during the clashes with the police they had the like information services so they had an information desk that helped people find each other like find your neighbors from the origins and so on they had some uh, educational program uh, where uh, professors from the best Ukrainian universities were lecturing about political science, uh, social science. They had, of course, they had their own like police. They had their own uh, security guards who were guarding this uh, camp. Uh, what else? So, yes, you you felt that those people. So there was. Of course, there was a lot of uh, myths around this revolution, and one of those, uh, one of them was that it was all inspired, all inspired by some Western governments, and paid, and the people who were trained. But being inside, uh, I mean, it was pretty obvious that it was not true. That those people, it was all a grassroots activity. That uh, those people somehow, without any experience in organizing something like that. Uh, they were successfully cooperating without any formal leadership. And so to do that, so grassroots, and to take that risk uh, requires a lot of hope yes. and its success. So what do you think, what vision of Ukraine do you believe these people hoped for? So uh, basically, uh, 
the again there is a popular notion that the ongoing conflict in is between like the Ukrainians and the Russians or the Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians and Russian speaking Ukrainians but actually this conflict has very little to do with the color of your passport it's more like a conflict between uh, people who want to go back to the Soviet uh, Union and people who want to be part of the modern Europe. So those people who were protesting against the government, uh, against Yanukovych, who was Putin's ally, uh, they were uh, hoping for a modern Ukraine that would be a part of the European family, that would be part of the modern world. And uh, not all of them some of them were so officially it was like a struggle for uh, association with European Union but actually not even the people who were protesting some of them were even sort of skeptical about the European Union with its regulations and so but they understood that the real alternative was going back to that state that they've experienced 30 years ago going like becoming the country influenced by Putin and his regime. And so what do you think of that hope now? The changes that have happened in Ukraine since? Do you think they're moving in the right direction? Mm, not at all. I mean, not, not, not in everything, unfortunately. So it's still a big mystery for me uh, that such a well-organized and inspirational uh, grassroots activity did not transform into some uh, formalized political organization. So we, they still have no uh, liberal party. So like the mainstream of this movement, it was totally liberal, not, li not libertarian, but in many ways classical liberal. So it's, it's a common thing for post-communist country that they like educated and open-minded people there are not the left wing, but mainly the classical liberals, because they they remember what it means to live under communism. At some point, like many of those people, they had a chance to uh, jump on a wagon and start uh, and participate in the process of reforming the country. So there were a lot of young Ukrainians, relatively young, who with Western education and job experience, who came back to the country after the revolution. Uh, I particularly worked with an organization uh, called Bendukidze Free Market Center. So Kakh Bendukidze was the most prominent reformer in the post-Soviet uh, world. He was responsible for the so-called Georgian economic miracle. He was supposed to take an active part in the Ukrainian transformation, but unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And so our like organizations was organization was preparing these economic reforms for the country like preparing promoting and i personally was responsible for like promoting them among the young audience so i ran a website where we discussed that issues we organized uh, some um, offline events for the students and uh, so, for example, the incumbent uh, minister of finance calls himself a libertarian openly, mm -hmm. regularly. And, uh, of course, he's a very controversial figure because one of his, the, his, the most controversial uh, suggestion by him, which he's 
currently working on was to uh, basically get rid of uh, free education because mm -hmm. education is free uh, most of like mainly free and mainly state owned in Ukraine and uh, of course he was criticized for that but there was a group of students like students for liberty ukraine who stood up and supported this decision of course they were criticized as well mm. but still so there is a discussion and like the libertarian voice is heard and uh they've been, they've done some they've done a few reforms that were very successful like the police reform uh the steps towards uh and energy dependence from Russia were quite successful. Mm, but unfortunately, the new government is still n still has no not enough political will to get rid of the oligarchy. Mm. So although the mainstream now is liberal, pro-European, the politicians, they have to uh, speak, pretend to be like Europeans. Uh, but in reality, they are just trying to uh, conserve the system as possibly as they can. So the pressure from the these grassroots activities is still there, but it, I mean, there's no guarantee that it will always be there because Ukraine already had one revolution, which in the beginning seemed to be successful, and it was successful. And after the revolution, they were the best, like in even economic terms and also in political terms, they were the few best years in the post-Soviet history of Ukraine, but still it was not, it did not brought all the, did not bring all the results that people were aiming for. Um, but that's, that's interesting that you say that the mainstream now is liberal leading, because mm -hmm. even throughout the history of the Far East Europe, the, um, the anti-communists weren't liberal themselves. They, they, was, they had a lot of very conservative pre-Soviet tendencies. Um, do you think that is there is there a resurgence of that type of kind of old world nationalism as well? Yes, of course, of course, and that's the problem because on one hand, uh, those like nationalist groups they were they played an important role during the revolution, even though some of them advocated for radical and sort of backwards solutions. Uh, they were tolerated by the liberal wing of the new, like, of, of the civil society because, like, they, they, had an they played an important role. But the more, like, Ukraine moves towards Europe, the more they uh, played, like, the role of the opposition. So with respect to that, you're saying it's becoming more European. How do you feel... Europe has treated Ukraine? Do you think Europe could do more or do you support the kind of policies the EU has taken towards Ukraine? That's a very complicated question uh, because on one hand uh, it's uh, like I think many people in Ukraine uh, are ironic and uh, sarcastic about that the like lot of support so like so-called support from Europe is only uh, boils down to declarations, uh, announcements, uh, statements, um, and which doesn't really change the situation because the Russian side, like Putin, does not really care anymore mm -hmm. after Russia is under sanctions. 
there's little change that a declaration can do uh, against uh, the Russian invasion. On, on the other hand, uh, so it was very important for Ukraine uh, to, yes, to feel that the Europe also needs them, not just they need Europe. And uh, all those uh, events, uh, like the rise of Euroscepticism was uh, played uh, quite a negative role for Ukraine because uh, like they, I, I wouldn't say they felt betrayed, but there was something of that kind. Like we were fighting for Europe because we believed in it. And when we finally got it, we realized that Europe is not anymore the way it used to be. So, um, and my personal opinion is that uh, to to realize, I mean, that's a common thing that when you get something good, you very like very soon you uh, take it for start taking it for granted and start focusing on the. Uh, drawbacks of your situation so uh, to realize like the I mean there, there are a lot of things that the European Union should be criticized for but to realize the uh, advantages of it it's important to look at the Eastern Europe mm. uh, because those are the countries that uh, they had a very if they hadn't joined the European family uh, they had real risk to go back to that state like in which they were in the Soviet times. So look at the Baltic countries, look at Poland, look at Czech Republic. Uh, for them, becoming part of Europe was a very important symbolical, besides like the institutional changes, besides the economic growth, it was also the, a very important uh, symbolical uh, step that we are not part of this uh, post-communist world anymore. Mm. And but so the the European countries as a whole have been quite uh, unanimous in condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine. Um, has that made the Ukrainians feel like they're supported? Uh, has that played a positive role in in shaping institutional change in Ukraine? Yes, of course it did, and uh, and it's not just about like public support. So uh, there was uh, like the international, the European and international institutions like World Bank, for example, they also played a role uh, of uh, sort of uh, uh, policing the Ukrainian government mm. so that they were, so the only way, uh, of, well, not the only way, of course, they were the Ukrainian government after the revolution, they kept in mind that the civil society is strong and they've already done, they've already created one revolution and they might be very angry if it, would be, if it were betrayed, mm -hmm. the goals of the revolution. But, uh, of course, the pace of reforms was not as fast as it should have been. And you can, and I've, I've seen a wonderful graph showing like the pace of the reforms so derived from the like amount of legislations uh, towards deregulation towards harmonizing the ukrainian laws with the european one ones and you can easily see that this pace uh, it it's rising dramatically 
ahead of some important meeting of the Ukrainian top officials with the mm-hmm. uh, with those international organizations. So okay, next week we have a we have to report to the World Bank. Let's do something mm-hmm. urgently. So that was again there are things that these organizations can be criticized for, but in the Ukrainian case they played an important role uh, in anti-corruption initiatives. So, for example, there was a uh, a new agency that was uh, anti-corruption agency that was built, uh, started as a grassroots initiative, but became an official body. And it was under huge pressure because its main, uh, its main goal was to find the cases of corruption, to investigate corruption in among top officials. And it was under pressure and it was like the uh, people who were working there, they were searched uh, once they were even physically attacked. Mm-hmm. And, but they were like officially in partnership with the World Bank and mm-hmm. the World Bank at some point they stepped in and started and like pledged to protect them and it helped. So as, as this uh, improves the situation, the international community, um, the ongoing conflict with Russia continues, um, and it's, it's, it's many years now. Mm-hmm. Do you see that the amount of resources Russia is expending on the Ukrainian campaign, that the amount of cost it bears to them, does that mean that there is an end in sight? Or is, do you feel that the Russian government is willing to continue wasting the resources and accepting the sanctions? Uh. Well, the Russian, that's a good question, uh, because the Russian economy is in a very bad state mm-hmm. after these events too. So there, there, there are sanctions, the oil is much cheaper than it used to be, and uh, the Russian currency has fallen dramatically, and you can feel it if you're in Moscow. If you're in the, some remote places, you won't feel it because they've always lived poorly. But in big cities, it's visible. and uh, But it doesn't seem like the government is uh, about to stop spending money on propaganda, on both propaganda among its own citizens and among the neighboring countries. It's, it's such a crazy situation. Uh, if you watch the Russian TV, like it's a completely, uh, it's a completely different world, like a completely, it's a complete bubble. So. I don't feel at the moment that Russian government is in any way uh, planning to stop spending money on propaganda. It's the most important thing both for its own, like propaganda among its own citizens and among the neighboring countries. Although people are living worse, uh, like their quality of life is falling, the like the Russian TV manages to uh, blame it on the plot, like the Western countries plotting against Russia or the neighboring countries plotting against Russia. So uh, by now it works. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but at the other, on the other hand, in an authoritarian country, no one actually knows what is the rate of support of the government. So they create a trap and then they fall into it themselves. Um, when people are afraid to express their opinion, you don't know whether they really support the government or not.
But and you yourself represent a, a kind of change in that because you elected a, on a libertarian platform as a councillor in Moscow. Yes. Do you see that as showing that people are having enough and they want radical change even in Russia? I believe that, uh, funnily enough, it might be easier to advocate for libertarian ideas in countries in authoritarian countries like Russia than in uh, relatively than in democratic Western countries. Uh, because so if you say to a German citizen like the government is evil, uh, he would say that why we have these wonderful roads, we have free education. But if you say to a Russian citizen that the government is evil, he will have nothing to say against it because he only gets like he sees the government as a source of problem, not the source of any help. And so from that perspective, uh, like inherently uh, Russian people are like might be <laughs> not all libertarians, but have some something libertarian in their approach. Uh, because they would rather prefer solving their, uh, many of them would prefer to solve their problems without any government uh, intervention. So uh, when I was campaigning, I was not uh, telling that I ran on a libertarian platform. I was speaking not about ideas, but about solutions. So I think that's the key for any libertarian politician. The key to uh, gain support is to uh, to do what basically Milton Friedman used to do when he was publicly speaking, to, to stress the fact that we have the same goals, like you and I. I also want our people to live uh, prosperously, uh, to have good education, to could have good health care, good infrastructure. I just don't believe that these tools work. I think that there are some other tools that might work. So let's debate about it. So, uh, and as I was running for local government, I, of course, could not uh, promise to change the uh, tax system uh, or to cut the like, national government spending, but I could uh, help people to have more uh, power over making the decisions on the low, lower level. And in terms of impact, uh, so on one hand, there was... On the global scale, there were very little that I managed to change while being in a local government. So there were a lot of like minor issues that I dealt on on a day-to-day -day basis where I tried to empower these local communities to tell them that the, the city is in their own hands, that it's them and not the government who should care about it. And uh, But on the other hand, so we have the new local elections in a month, less than a month. And now we have, so five years ago, there was a few dozens of independent young candidates who were running uh, with sort of liberal platform. And now we have several hundreds of them. So uh, I believe that we've inspired a lot of other people because it was it was not part of the agenda for the Russian opposition, liberal opposition to like run for local offices, and I think that we were able to prove that it can work. That this is a an important step if we want to prove that we are the good alternative for the current government. Then we need to start from the local level. 
Um, and in a practical way, then, since you were able to, on a local level, deal with um, more the concerns of people and deal with them in a, in a more liberal way, in a more Western way, do you think that that's kind of the, the shape liberalism will take in Russia in the future? That local government moves to be more sympathetic to its people and less corrupt, and that's, that's where the change is going to be? Or do you think the institutions, like the government as a whole acts as a barrier to change at the local level. I truly believe in the uh, importance of the local level. So as an activist of the Libertarian Party, one of the leaders, I've traveled all over Russia and I've met our uh, activists in other regions. And more and more I was, re I was uh, realizing the importance of this local level. And uh, of course, the like we won't change the situation if we win a lot of seats in the local councils, if our president will still be Vladimir Putin. Uh, but it might like showing the people that we really care, that we have solutions, might help to gain their support and their trust, so that they will support us on a higher level. And as soon as we like all the opposition parties, so we have a number of. Uh, democrat like liberal democratic parties uh, and libertarian parties part of this coalition and we cannot run for well we can run for national elections so the former leader of the libertarian party ran for national parliament last year but of course we don't have access to the um, we don't have access to the media uh, to the mainstream media we don't have uh, we meet all sort of obstacles obstacles when we try to campaign. So people get... I was physically attacked when I was campaigning three years ago. There were some thugs who uh, broke our booth and tore, tore apart the signatures that I was collecting in support of my candidacy. So this th these things happen. Uh, but... Uh, so you, you can change uh, the country uh, solely on the local level, uh, but you can empower these grassroots communities. Yes, I believe that uh, it's like the libertarian reform is not about uh, eliminating the government overnight, uh, but about like gradually replacing it with uh, voluntary activities. So as soon as the people will see that in this sphere, in other sphere, they can work without the government, they will agree that it's obsolete. So as soon as you will help people to self-organize on the law, and these things happen on a local level, definitely, and uh, make decisions and, I don't know, fund these decisions without the tax money, uh, the sooner you will have a population, a, you will have citizens that will believe in their ability to uh, live with minimal government. So um, on both Ukraine and Russia, you presented a quite an optimistic picture. So would you say that you think that people are starting to understand these more Western liberal values and that over time things will change? 
I don't like <laughs> to call them the Western liberal values. Okay. <laughs> I think that the liberal values are universal. Okay. Yeah. That in every culture you can find some uh, roots of the liberal tradition. It's not like the product of the Western culture. Well, of course, in some in some cultures they are more dominant, dominating. In some cultures they've been suppressed, but I believe that as soon as they're like this, the impl implementation of these ideas will make any nation happier mm. than they're universal. So yeah, I'm optimistic because again, I think that. Uh, our generation have a chance to uh, get rid of the government, not through revolutions, not through uh, political process, not through creating libertarian parties and participating in elections, although I believe these things are also very, very important. Otherwise, I wouldn't have take mm -hmm. part in it. Uh, but through this, through replacing the government, so, uh, for example, uh, I don't know, share an economy. So why... What made it possible? Why would a why would you sit in a stranger's car? Because there is a reputation system. Why would you trust the other people who are ranking the driver? Because you know that we all have this incentive to trust each other, not to uh, defeat each other, and uh, the same thing can work in other spheres as well. So. Mm, it's uh, about creating parallel structures rather than fighting against the government. It's about making it obsolete. So we are, we are younger than those dictators like Putin. We will, uh, we will live longer anyway. So, and I see, so I see in Russia there is now a civil uprising again because we have a presidential election next year and also it's pretty obvious that Vladimir Putin will win again. We have an opposition candidate who is not a libertarian, but he has a rather liberal platform and he's supported by this liberal coalition. And uh, so his uh, campaign helped, uh, it brought to the street a lot of very, very young people, uh, like people who graduated from high school yesterday, <laughs> people who were born under Putin. So they were born when Putin was already in power. And next year they're turning 18 and they will be voting for the first time. And before this uprising, I was sure that like this generation is doomed because they've never seen any uh, democracy apart from the, I don't know, house of cards. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the school textbooks on political, uh, like on sociology. But, uh, but now I see that it's not true. They just live in a parallel reality. They get their, I believe, yeah, it was two years ago that uh, the internet surpassed the television uh, as a main source of information among people uh, younger than 25. So they do not, although the government spends a huge lot uh, amounts of money on propaganda, it just does not reach them. Uh, they, they're watching YouTube videos. They are, and they just, they do not tolerate uh, hypocrisy. So if the government is saying that we have a democracy, they just can't live with the fact that it's not so. So they are they are not afraid of anything. They are protesting and. 
I believe they have a role to play. Okay, thank you for sitting down. You presented a far more uh, hopeful picture for those places than you hear a lot in the West, so I think this would be very valuable for our listeners. Uh, thanks. Thank you, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and make sure to tune in next time where I'll have another guest talking about other relevant issues. Feel free to continue the debate by commenting or messaging us with your opinions. Thank you, and have a nice day.